to Sass Mouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Meg McGurk. When it comes to film stars, I'm always drawn to the climb rather than the fall. Each time I pick up a memoir or a biography, I want to know how she got there and what she did to reach the top. Joan Crawford's story is unique. Joan had been raised to expect nothing but abuse, neglect, and poverty. Circumstance tried to put the skids under her when she was born. Yet by some miracle, without ever being loved, Joan learned how to love herself. She developed an unshakable self-assurance, which enabled her to rise to the pinnacle of stardom. After seven years under contract in MGM, Joan Crawford's hard work paid off. In 1932, Joan ranked third on the list of moneymakers at the box office, right behind Marie Dressler, who was in first place, and Janet Gaynor, who took second. In ticket sales, Joan ranked above her competition, Garbo in fifth place, and Norma Shearer at sixth. Joan proved her range to columnists and her drawing power to studio executives. Her star power was bigger than the typecasting the studio had initially offered. Joan wasn't just a dancer or a flapper hoyden. She was a serious dramatic artist. The three pictures she made in 1932 are all standouts. Joan gets away with murder in two of them. Two of the pictures are easy to find, Grand Hotel, where Joan proved she was in the same league as Garbo and the Barrymores, and Rain, where Joan put her stamp on a Jean Eagles classic from the stage, which was first brought to the screen by Gloria Swanson in 1928. Letty Linton, the third picture she made in 1932, has been locked in a vault since 1936, but it remains a marvel because of the bold physicality of Joan's performance. Joan weathered the storms of Hollywood with the same steadfast courage that she displays in the role of the eponymous heroine who faces a murder charge. In 1932, Joan played characters who kept a cool head. When she clashed with a sex pest, a blackmailer, and a deranged preacher, Joan showed women in the audience how they could survive the worst from men and come out on top. Joan was never cagey about her success. Her beauty and talent were both learned over a number of years and won through discipline and hard work. Screenwriter Federica Segor Moss offers an eyewitness account for what Joan was like when she joined Metro in January 1925. In her memoir, The Shocking Miss Pilgrim, Frederica, or Freddie, as she was known in the studio, recalled the day when director Eddie Goulding invited her to meet the chorus girl that producer Harry Rapp had signed at the Winter Garden Theater in New York City. Freddie took one look at the girl who stepped off the train and decided she was an obvious strumpet. The new girl's skirt was hiked up to her belly button. She wore too much makeup. She had wild, frizzy hair. Cocky and hard-boiled, the new gal chewed gum, and when they were introduced, she challenged Freddie. You a writer, huh? Freddie noted that restless ambition was written all over her face. Her name was Lucille Sir by birth, Billy Casson to her friends. A week later, the new starlet stopped by her office, saying that she liked the way Freddie dressed. She looked like a lady. Lucille, as she would be for the first six months of her contract, was eager to dress like a star and live up to her new studio image. She wasn't shy about asking for help. Freddie took Lucille to upscale shops and selected tailored lines and somber colors, navy, brown, gray, and black, 
No brash color, spangles, bows, beads, or fringe. Once Joan was in the dressing room, the chorus girl was already in the rear view. From the start, Joan followed a regimen better suited to an Olympic athlete than a Hollywood actress. She jogged, played tennis, swam laps, took dance lessons. Exercise was not just for her waistline or weight loss. The daily workout she did gave Joan the energy and stamina she needed to thrive under the grueling studio schedule. For most of her career, Joan worked at least 12 or 14 hours a day, six days a week. Additionally, Joan embarked on a strict curriculum of self-improvement. She studied French. She took voice culture lessons long before anyone worried about the introduction of talking pictures. Joan became a voracious reader. She read scripts and good books and developed a dictionary habit. In the studio, she asked for criticism and took the feedback to heart. Joan's self-improvement lessons were adhesive and lifelong. Worried about her first screen test, Joan relied on support from the cameraman, Johnny Arnold. Afterwards, Johnny told her to relax. Her test was a success. Most of the girls looked the same, he explained, but she didn't look like anybody else. She was athletic, and her face was built. In the early days at MGM, bit players had to do their own makeup, and Joan learned by trial and error. At first, she tried to make her eyes look smaller and her mouth, too, to fit the screen fashion of the time. It took a while before she realized her eyes were her best feature. Later, when she started to make the gossip pages, a rumor circulated that Joan had had surgery, where her eyelids had been split open to make her eyes appear larger. At Metro, frankly, Joan started at the bottom. In her screen debut, she played Norma Shearer's body double and Lady of the Night. Joan found a way to keep busy in the studio to develop her careers, even when she wasn't cast in a picture. She made a habit of watching people work. She asked questions and listened. She kept an eye on the studio schedule, looking for any part that might suit her, and she wasn't shy about asking for them. She had watched Billy Haynes on set and Eleanor Boardman. She also watched Marion Davies and noted that the star was far funnier than the picture she made. Joan gained acting experience by performing for the photographer's lens when she wasn't on the soundstage. Ruth Harriet Louise, Metro Stills photographer from 1925 to 1930, played an important role in developing Joan's talent and star profile. Keen to develop her career, Joan leapt at any kind of publicity shoot. In costume, she did holiday-themed sessions for Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, Valentine's Day, Easter, Fourth of July, and all those kitschy um, settings. Joan hit her stride in athletic settings, running at the track, working out of the gym, or frolicking at the beach that showcased her increasingly svelte figure and physical prowess. She looked like a healthy American co-ed. The publicity stills appeared in magazines and newspapers and provided a build-up for Joan's career. The public noticed her, and moreover, they remembered her, even when she wasn't cast in a picture at the local cinema. Joan studied Ruth Harriet Louise's photographs as though they were an oracle. The glossy prince told Joan who she was and who she could become. She scrutinized her appearance, expression, deportment, was always looking to learn and improve. 
After six months in the studio, she had a new contract for $100 a week and a new name. She became Joan Crawford as the result of a studio-sponsored magazine contest. Initially, the winning name was Joan Arden, but it was found out there was an extra in the studio by the same name. Joan grumbled to her new friend, William Haynes. It sounded like crawfish. Haynes, a popular star in the studio, looked for the bright side. At least it wasn't cranberry. In the beginning of her career in Metro, when she didn't have an early call in the studio, Joan soaked up the Hollywood nightlife. She was restless. She had never known an idle day in her life, and she was impatient to become a star. Joan released her excess energy on the dance floors by winning Charleston contests. One publicist quipped that Joan had more cups than the Brown Derby. Joan herself had estimated she won at least 100 silver cups. Pasadena playboy Michael Cudahy was often her dance partner. Local gossip had it that Cudahy and Joan had secretly married. But once his mother found out, she raised hell, called in the lawyers, and had the marriage annulled. It wasn't long before Mike Cudahy drank himself to death. He was one of many Jazz Age revelers who met an early grave by binge drinking. One night when Joan was dancing in a Charleston contest at the Coconut Grove, director Eddie Goulding was in the audience, and he was captivated by the energy she exhibited on the dance floor and noted that Joan looked intoxicated with joy. He cast Joan in his picture, Sally, Irene, and Mary. It was her breakout role in Metro. Joan learned from watching the stars on set, and although she was impressed with Marion Davies and Eleanor Boardman, she admired Mae Murray because, Joan noted, Mae was a dancer and every facet of her dancing technique came to bear in her performance. Joan aspired to do the same in her own roles. Once her career started moving in earnest, her brother Hal Lasser showed up on her doorstep. He was still arrogant and selfish, just as he had always been. According to Hal, if his plain kid sister could make a go of it in Hollywood, he was a cinch to become a star. Joan found him work as a studio extra. He expected her on the side to take care of his laundry, his meals, and his transportation when he wasn't hitting the nightclubs and picking up women. Hal often borrowed her car at night and would fail to return it by morning, or he would smash it up and leave it on the road somewhere. The most important thing in Joan's life was her work in Metro, which was then jeopardized by her deadbeat brother. To make matters worse, their mother Anna soon came to live with them, and having her mother in the house was a strain that only added to her financial and emotional burden that could have derailed Joan's career. Anna took Hal's side whenever they quarreled. Anna scolded Joan if she complained about Hal's poor work ethic or his lack of discipline. And then one day, Joan was served with a summons. A department store sued Joan for non-payment of funds. Joan discovered her mother had opened charge accounts all over town. Anna claimed the income of her movie star daughter as collateral. Joan was forced to take in a boarder for a while, another aspiring starlet, to help pay the bills while she re reimbursed the shop owners. Once the debts were cleared, Joan moved her mother and her brother into their own house and found a new one for herself on Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills. By the time she met Douglas Fairbanks in 1927, Joan was getting a big build-up by the studio and receiving top billing. He was just starting out. 
On opening night, after Doug appeared in Young Young Woodley at the Belasco Theater in Los Angeles, Joan sent a note backstage. She complimented his performance, invited him to call on her, and asked for a signed photograph. Doug was flattered and stopped by Joan's house before curtain one night. She served tea. Doug was dazzled by her interest. He put on his best manners and tried to impress her. In his memoir, Joan noted that Joan was magnetic, but not classically beautiful. He quoted a columnist who said Joan's mouth looked like a torn pocket. Doug noted that Joan's jawline was so sharp, it could make her look hard. He said her voice was a mix of Texas with New York icing. He characterizes Joan as an older woman because he was only a teenager, 18 or 19, when they met, and she was a few years older. Looking back on their courtship, Doug recalled, I began to wear her like a flower in my young buttonhole. In Doug's book, he paints Joan with a severe brush at times, criticizing her for being too serious about her career, that she was a workaholic who did nothing but worry about her future in Metro. But as the boy with a silver spoon in his mouth, with no shortage of champions in Hollywood, including Charlie Chaplin, who is a mentor of sorts his colleague's son, Doug was rather glib about Joan. He had the benefit of money, breeding, and family. It was easy to frown upon Joan's grit and work habits from a lofty position in society. Joan lacked any kind of safety net and worked hard, harder than the devil, to secure her fortunes. And while we're at it, men are never taken to task for being devoted to their career. Although he doesn't give Joan credit for advancing his career, she was a good influence. Joan set high standards for herself with sound habits for work, study, and an early-to-bed, early-to-rise schedule. She kept him on the right path rather than the dissolute road he could have taken, maybe, say, with his friend Mike Cudahy. When they married in June of 1929, Joan Crawford made $1,250 a week at Metro. She bought the marital home on Bristol Avenue in Brentwood. Doug Jr., by contrast, earned a fraction of her salary. For a wedding present, he bought her a portable dressing room, which was about the size of a large garden shed. The Brentwood home versus the portable dressing room is a sort of handy reference point for the measuring the disparity of their star power. Joan's stardom gave her an advantage in their marriage. Specifically, I mean that Joan could put her foot down about her time. She didn't let anything interrupt her schedule. She didn't compromise her work at the studio, her lessons, exercise, or massage before 9 o'clock bedtime. My favorite example of how she wore the pants is the beach house in Malibu. Joan kept it a secret from her husband. She needed a private retreat to rest after working hard in the studio. Once she had a picture in the can, Joan would repair to the beach house for what she called personal solitude. Joan did not share the phone number or address with her husband, Doug Fairbanks Jr. If he needed her when she was there, he could ring her secretary. Only her agent, secretary, and the studio had her telephone number there. But Doug found out that some of her friends had the number and had been there and knew where it was. Doug Jr. pretended he knew, too. During one argument, Doug tried to press the issue, and he threatened to hire a private detective to find the house. Joan shut him right down. 
If he tried to find her beach house, she would file for divorce, she told him. They separated on the down low. Joan didn't want to risk any bad publicity. In the press, they were a dream couple. They appeared to have it all, and they made good copy. In a Silver Screen magazine profile from January 1932, columnist Ben Maddox identified two keys to Crawford's audience appeal. He wrote, She's the modern maiden version of Cinderella, the ambitious little nobody who waves her own fairy wand. Maddox also observed that Joan Crawford you know is a work of art, a masterpiece of glamour, offering visible, tangible proof that beauty and culture can be acquired. When portrait photographer George Harrell first worked with Joan in 1930, he noted, I felt a kind of emotional tug and an excitement. I knew I had a unique subject. He later said he would have been content if he only had Joan to work with for the rest of his career. Harrell captured the essence of Joan's performance as Letty Lytton in the portraits he shot on the set of Grand Hotel, the picture she made before Letty Lytton. Although the still session with Joan was extemporaneous and shot before Letty Lytton began production, the photos he took anticipate the emotional palette Joan created when she brought the character to life. Joan didn't just pose for Harrell's lens, she gave a performance. Each shot is a composition of style and sensation. In some shots, Joan looks devastated, full of melancholy and remorse. In other photos, she looks boldly defiant. In others, she looks scornful and bitter. Harrell felt she gave a stirring performance during their Letty Linton session. Joan's performance inspired Harrell. He experimented with his technique that broke with industry standards. For example, the fan magazines at the time wanted white backgrounds for their subjects. Harrell resisted that trend and instead developed his preference for inky black saturated backgrounds. In the most famous shots of Joan for Letty Linton, she's dressed in a black coat with a popped black fur collar and a black skull cap and photographed against a black background. Only her face and hands pop out. Joan explained that Harrell worked to make his subjects relax, but that she never felt self-conscious in the portrait studio. She noted, I've always said that my mother and my father were both cameras. I've never known anything but a camera. That's why I'm so relaxed in front of them. Joan trusted the lens to capture what she wanted to show. Production on Letty Linton began in February 1932. Joan was supported by professionals she knew and trusted. Clarence Brown, a consummate studio director, had helmed Possessed, the third and best picture she made with Clark Gable. Cinematographer Ollie Marsh lensed Mae Murray's hits with her husband, director Bob Leonard, before he first photographed Joan for Dream of Love in 1929. Joan co-starred with Nils Astor in Dream of Love, sadly a lost picture. They were friends off-screen and happily routine for Letty Lytton. Joan's other co-star was Bob Montgomery. Bob played her love interest in Untamed and Our Blushing Brides and would do the same many times during Joan's tenure in Metro. Joan's collaboration with Gilbert Adrian, Metro's costume designer, helped launch her performance in Letty Linton to the ranks of stellar pre-code heroines who outwit a dangerous man. Edith Head once declared that Letty Linton was the single most important fashion influence in film history. 
Adrian's busy design in the white organza gown with large ruffled sleeves, a Peter Pan collar, peplum, and tiered ruffles with accordion pleats is a perfect match for the scene set on a ship bound for New York. Joan wants to forget all about the reckless affair she had with a South American gigolo played by Nils Astor. On board the ocean liner, she's fallen for Bob Montgomery. It's Christmas Day, and her character feels blue. She wears Adrian's big white gown with the puffy sleeves, and she looks like an angel on top of a Christmas tree. Or maybe she also looks like she just stepped off the top of a wedding cake. Joan is dressed like an innocent, virginal bride, which is exactly what she longs to be in this moment when she's feeling lonesome. Adrian's white gown influenced fashion throughout the Depression and the Second World War until Dior's new look debuted. But it's not the most interesting dress in the film. Joan wears the picture's most sensational ensemble during the climax, the scene where she meets Nils Astor in his hotel room. Emile, who he plays, is her ex-lover, and he's given her an ultimatum. Continue their affair, or he will make her intimate letters a public scandal. Letty intends to retrieve the letters and break it off for good so she can marry a member of New York society. But Emile refuses to let her go. When Joan enters the hotel room, she's baleful as the waning moon. When Emile opens the door, she's wearing a black coat with a pop fur collar and a black skull cap. The simple wool skull cap looks like a match for the one Greta Garbo wore as Mata Hari. It's a cap befitting the grim business at hand. They're high fashion executioners. Howard Guttner, who wrote the essential book on Adrian's MGM years, noted that in the hat and coat, Joan looks like a cobra poised to strike. Emile has already had a few glasses of wine by the time she gets there. He paws at her the minute she steps inside the room. Joan plays for time. She forces him to be polite. Please, she stops him. My coat. He hangs up her coat and peels off her shoe rubbers, noting with arrogance that she won't be needing them again tonight. Emile thinks she's spending the night. Under her coat, Joan's ensemble is a showstopper. She wears a two-piece silver lame cocktail dress. The tunic folds in a flap from the neck and falls into a peplum over her hips. A slim skirt falls to mid-calf. Adrian's design transforms Joan into a high-fashion gladiator in a silver shield. Letty asks if there's any wine left, confessing that she's congealed. Joan looks like a silver archangel come to battle the most pernicious demon, the ex-lover who won't let go. Nils grabs her, embraces her, puts his hand on her, but Joan is armor-plated. She's in love with Bob Montgomery, and she wants their affair to be in the past. Can't she just have her chance, she begs him. Nils Astor scoffs. He'll not be thrown over for a man Letty is known for only three weeks. He's an utter brute when he says, women don't think, they change their minds, that's all. Joan lashes out. She tells him that the last time they were together, I felt like putting a knife in your heart. Joan makes the threat palpable because she's dressed like a silver dagger. Joan is a sartorial sword of Damocles waiting to slice him apart. 
she's weaponized in the silver lame. At one point, a waiter knocks on the door to collect the dinner service. Joan takes advantage of the interruption to pour a vial of poison she just happened to be carrying into her champagne glass. She would rather die than submit to his touch. They quarrel again once the door closes. So you would kill yourself because I take you in my arms, hmm? Well, we shall leave you with the first boat south. And I prophesy we shall have no more trouble ever again. Yes, we'll take the next boat south. No more trouble. My boat's in the harbor at Montevideo. We shall sail in the moonlight. Yes, sail in the moonlight. Music from the shore, just for you and me. Yes, just for you and me. We shall dance, my lady. Yes, we'll dance. Do you remember last night down there, the tango? How glorious. We will dance again. Oh, yes. Yes, we'll dance. We'll dance. <laughs> now life has some meaning. Now it has some Honestly, I'm not, Emil. Won't you please let me be alone for just a minute? Please. Emil is arrogant. He strikes her in the face and knocks her down twice, once into the chair and again on the floor. Joan's composure breaks. Tears pour down her face, along with a single blob of mascara that spills from the corner of her eye. It's exquisite. Emile sweeps her into his arms and starts to carry her to the bedroom. Joan's body is stretched out. She looks as lithe and graceful as a prima ballerina. She's hysterical, laughing, her body convulsing. And the way Joan's body moves, it mimics the sexual abandon she once shared with Emile. But this time, the former sexual passion has become a frenzy for survival. Writhing in his arms, Joan is trapped by an ex-lover who plans to rape her in the next room. She is saved only by a twist of fate. Joan's in grave danger, and her embodied performance is her most physically bold work to date outside of a dance floor. Production code censors warned the studio that the script was objectionable. A memo from Jason Joy complained that Letty had affairs because of the sex urge rather than true love. A heroine in Hollywood at the time couldn't just like having sex. If she wound up in bed with a man, it better be followed by a trip down the aisle to satisfy the men in the Breen office. Father Daniel Lord felt that although the production code wasn't violated by dialogue or costume, he believed the film's underlying philosophy of life was unacceptable. Bob Montgomery's character condones Letty's promiscuous past and plans to marry her anyway, which was just as shocking as Joan getting away with murder. Lamar Trotty groused that MGM too often escaped interference from the code officials on the grounds that the studio displayed good taste in matters of sex. I'm sure it didn't hurt that Irving Thalberg was one of the architects of the production code. It gave him an authority with the Breen office that the other moguls did not have. 
reviews for Letty Linton were mostly raves. Columnists uniformly praised Jones' performance. Photoplay ranked it at the top of the month's releases. Picture Play's Norbert Lusk declared that it was Crawford's coming of age as an actress. He called the picture revolutionary. Perhaps the most glowing review came from Edward Cushing, writing for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. One month after the picture premiered at the Capitol Theater on Broadway, Cushing felt it was time for a reappraisal of Letty Linton. Cushing felt his fellow critics were not effusive enough in their praise. He prefaced his review by calling Letty Linton one of the most distinguished pictures since sound and dialogue were introduced. He boldly declared, I'm willing to risk the opinion that Letty Linton was a perfect picture. Cushing explained that it wasn't a masterpiece, but it was perfect entertainment, presented realistically with intelligence and excellent taste by Clarence Brown. The reviewer argues, on the whole, Letty Linton is the sort of thing that we have every right to expect the screen should aim to as an average of excellence, but which is actually rare in our experience in American pictures. Entertainment for adults, for people with some knowledge, such as all of us should possess, of the world and its people. It deserved more attention than it received. The legal battle that followed the film's release continues to the present day, which explains why the film remains locked in the vaults. Letty Litton is perhaps the most famous case of plagiarism by modern film studios. In June 1932, Margaret Ayer Barnes and Edward Sheldon, the playwrights who wrote Dishonored Lady in 1930, filed a suit against MGM. The authors claimed copyright infringement and argued Metro deliberately cribbed elements from their play without credit. In 1938, a New York Circuit Judge Court awarded damages in excess of $532,000, nearly the full uh, profit from the film. But the following year, a federal court judge reversed the lower court's ruling. The case was reported in Motion Picture Herald, August 1939. The federal court ruled the amount was unjust. Instead, the judge applied a theory of apportionment to award damages. The judge argued that the value of a picture and its profits were based on more than just the story or the script. The bench ruled that the stars, the director, and the publicity contributed to a film's success. Using that logic, they apportioned 20% of the film's profits to Barnes and Sheldon. The playwrights balked at the decision. They considered appealing it to the Supreme Court. And they also considered filing suit against the individual theater owners who had shown Letty Lytton. Hardcore Joan Crawford fans know that you can find a blurry bootleg print of Letty Lytton on the usual dodgy websites until the legal ruling expires. Eventually, though, we will get to see a restored version on the big screen. After Joan finished Letty Lytton, she started production on Rain. And once that picture wrapped, she embarked on her first trip to Europe. It was a long overdue honeymoon with Doug Jr. that was a joint publicity campaign financed by their their studios, Metro and Warners. The truth was their marriage was already over before they sailed. Doug was annoyed that she didn't seem excited by the trip. He admitted he cheated on the voyage over. 
Joan climbed the walls the entire trip, impatient with a six-week absence from the studio. She might miss out on a great script. But then the Dietz case put an end to their quiet separation. Early 1933, a Danish man named Jorgen Dietz filed for alienation of affection. Dietz's heart bomb suit named Doug Jr. Dietz's wife was Solveig, who worked as an extra in Warner's where Doug was under contract. Doug claimed innocence. In his version, his dresser at the studio borrowed his car during lunch breaks. It was the dresser who carried on the affair with Mrs. Dietz. That old chestnut is right up there with the dog ate my homework. Joan wasn't having any of it. Although she told the press that the Dietz case had nothing to do with their breakup, it definitely did. Extramarital affairs were one thing, but sloppy indiscretion that leaked to the press was intolerable. Joan gave an exclusive about their split to her columnist friend, Catherine Albert. Afterwards, Joan feared the wrath of Luella Parsons. Catherine Albert wrote for a monthly magazine and couldn't break a story quickly. In the meantime, Luella had to be first to report splits in her daily column, and if she wasn't, she would get even with negative publicity. Catherine Albert nursed a grudge against Joan for years and finally got her revenge in 1952 when she wrote the script for The Star. It's a hit piece if there ever was one. No matter, increasingly, Joan learned to be as impervious to the slings and arrows as she looked when she wore silver lame armor and Letty Lytton. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. A Portrait of Joan, The Autobiography of Joan Crawford by Joan Crawford with Jane Kesner Ardmore, published in 1962. Conversations with Joan Crawford by Roy Newquist, published in 1980. The Shocking Miss Pilgrim, A Writer in Early Hollywood by Federica Segor Moss, published in 1999. The Salad Days, An Autobiography, Volume 1 by Douglas Fairbanks Jr., published in 1988. Clarence Brown, Hollywood's Forgotten Master by Gwenda Young, published in 2018. Ruth Harriet Louise in Hollywood Glamour Photography by Robert Dance and Bruce Robertson, published in 2002. George Harrell's Hollywood Glamour Portraits 1925-1992 by Mark A. Vieira, published in 2013. Gowns by Adrian, The MGM Years, 1928-1941 by Howard Guttner, published in 2001. Forbidden Hollywood, The Pre-Code Era, 1930-1934, When Sin Ruled the Movies, by Mark A. Vieira, published in 2019. Thanks for listening.